Well, welcome to Salem Chapel. If you're new with us, my name is Johnny Pereira. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And uh, man, we're glad that you're here in person. We're glad that you're watching us online. Uh, if you're listening to this later in the week or whenever you are, man, I'm glad that you're doing so. And uh, we count it as an honor and a privilege to be able to gather together as we continue our series, That You May Believe, walking through the book of John. And so we're going to be in John 14 this morning, and uh, specifically looking at the first 17 verses of this chapter. And I want to point your attention as you're turning there to the first phrase in John 14, 1. Because here's what I'm not naive in, that many of you if not the vast, vast majority of you are experiencing what Jesus addresses in this very first verse. And I don't say that in a pessimistic way, I just say that in a realistic way. We're also, uh, it's impossible, you know, to avoid watching on the news and seeing what's going on with Ukraine and I'm not remiss to even think that there may be some people in this room or watching online that have family members that are directly affected, that live in that country, um, or you may be from that country. And so, uh, and I'll just be transparent with you, when I came into this building this morning, I don't know why, but I felt a weightiness, a heaviness that I didn't feel when I was on my way to church that I felt here this morning, and so... I don't know why that's the case other than I believe that, I believe every week that what we open up, when we open up God's word, it applies to where we are. But for whatever reason, I feel a, a, a more significant uh, sense that what we're going to look at today intersects many, if not all of us in this room and watching us online. John 14, 1, if you're there, say you're there. Awesome. Beginning part of verse one, Jesus says these words to his disciples, literally hours before he is captured, tried, and goes to the cross. He says to his disciples, look at verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. I think it's also significant that in verse 21 of chapter 13, we looked at chapter 13 last week, though he specifically didn't deal with verse 21, says, you can take off the, there you go. Um, verse 21 says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So Jesus being 100% God, but yet also 100% human, experienced trouble in his spirit after he gets done washing the disciples' feet, noting, noting that one of his disciples who he spent three years with is about to betray him, now in John 14 tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And the reason why I point that out is what we're gonna look at today, the significance of it, is coming from a savior who knows exactly what it's like to be troubled himself. And so what I want us to do, I know we just prayed, but to just prepare our hearts, knowing what we're going to be talking about, to be ready to allow God's word to speak whatever is troubling us. 
And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray that, that God, whatever we came in with there, in to this room this morning, whatever may be filling a living room right now at home, or a car, or whatever the environment may be, whatever is overwhelming the mind, whatever trouble that is, that the words that come from the mouth of our Savior, God, the one that you sent to provide salvation for our sins, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, that when he says, let not your hearts be troubled, that we would not receive that as a rebuke, but we would receive that as coming from someone who allowed himself to know what it was like to be troubled and to receive it as words that can help us in our trouble. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine right now. We pray for the church of Ukraine. Lord, we pray for protection and provision and an overwhelming sense of your presence as they go through what is unfathomable to most of us and, Lord willing, we would never experience ourselves. God, I pray for those who do not know you as their Savior. And God, it's just a reminder of the brokenness of this world. So God, we just entrust that to you, not even knowing what exactly that will entail. But God, I thank you that though we are troubled in heart, you are ready to minister to whatever that trouble is. And so God, may we be ready to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I don't mean to start this message off pessimistically. If you know me personally, you know I'm not a pessimistic person. I really don't like to dwell on the negative at all, so much so that probably I avoid it at all costs. But when I was preparing for this and reading through this chapter myself, that phrase, let not your hearts be troubled, just sprang off the pages of God's word to me, to speak to me personally, but also knowing what each of you probably are facing. Though I don't know it in detail, though I don't know it necessarily personally, like I said, not naively thinking that the vast majority of us are not in that place. Because life is oftentimes just filled with trouble. Disappointment is trouble. Maybe you're disappointed this morning. You're disappointed maybe with yourself because you were like, man, last week I, I was here or I was reading God's word and I felt like you know, the Lord was speaking clearly to me on, on how I needed to respond to a situation and I had a game plan in place and I was gonna be in his word every day and I wanted to talk to him about what I was going through and for whatever reason, you're disappointed in yourself because you're like, man, I had great intentions but not the greatest in execution of those intentions. And so you're disappointed with yourself. And so your trouble is maybe disappointment. Because at the end of the day, what do we want to be? We want to be strong. We don't want to be weak. Right? We want to be successful. Nothing wrong with that. But oftentimes we experience failure and, it re and, and, 
And so while our intentions are good and wanting to be successful in whatever it is, whatever endeavor it is, we experience failure. What else do we want to be? We want to be liked. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be liked. But oftentimes what happens, right? People are often at best indifferent to us, you know? We get disappointed with other people. Maybe that was your trouble this week or this last month or however long it was. You're disappointed in your spouse. You're disappointed in your friends. You're disappointed with your employer. You're disappointed at work. You're disappointed with a partner, whatever it is. And that's brought trouble on you. Maybe it's some disappointments that are out of your control, right? That you're like, well, I can't even control this situation, like the loss of a loved one or a diagnosis of some sort or whatever it is. Maybe that's your trouble. How about this? There's spiritual troubles. Say, man, Johnny, I know God's word. I know what's right, but I feel withdrawn from the Lord's presence, even though I know theologically that's not true, but I feel that. I'm feeling discouraged. I'm feeling despair. But when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Here's literally what that means in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. It means this, do not let your hearts shudder. Because isn't that what oftentimes trouble does? It makes us shudder, it makes us worry, it makes us consumed with whatever that is. And so the title of the message is this, what do you do in the midst of trouble? What do I do? You're like, Johnny, were you in my brain? Like, did you, were you listening in on a conversation? Like, you're like, hey, that's exactly how I feel. Well, what do we do? And I'm so thankful that Jesus tells us what we do. See, this is the idea that I want you to get today that I think really sums up these verses that we're gonna look at. It's this, that Jesus is inviting you to continue believing in him in the midst of your trouble. We've used that phrase throughout this entire series, this invitation that Jesus is constantly giving. Why are we using that language? Because John gives the purpose of why he wrote this gospel, that we would believe and keep on believing, what? That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God for our salvation, but for every circumstance, every, if we wanna use the words of Jesus today, trouble. And so what Jesus is inviting you to do is to continue believing him and who he says he is and what he's provided and what we're going to look at from these verses in the midst of your trouble, of my trouble, of our trouble. And so I just want to give you three ways to do that that are from these verses Look at verse one. We'll read it again. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's so important because the tense in which it's written in has this idea of this is something that you need to continue to do. Continue believing. It's not a one-time deal. Continue believing in God, believing in me. That's why we said the idea is to continue believing in Jesus in the midst of your trouble. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms, or some of your translations may say mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. 
Evidently, Jesus has told his disciples this before, even though this is the first time this is mentioned. Because it's a, phrased in a question. Like, would I have said that I go to prepare a place for you if I wasn't going to do that? So he's reminding them of something that they already were told. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Notice in verse 3, it says, if I go, if I prepare a place for you. Jesus isn't saying he's going to allow his servants to do that. No, he's going to personally do that. See, here's the first way that we continue believing in Jesus in the midst of our trouble from these first four verses. We choose to believe that Jesus has provided and is preparing your future with him. It's a choice to believe. Like my salvation, God was the initiator of that. God's the one that opened my eyes to that. God is the one that when I was dead in my trespasses and sins and I had no desire for God at all, he opened my eyes, he brought me to the realization that I needed him as my savior. God was the one involved in my salvation. But in my sanctification, do you know what it takes? It takes me choosing along with the Holy Spirit to grow more and more in understanding and applying Jesus' love to every one of my circumstances. So it's a choice to believe. Believe what? Man, that Jesus provided and is preparing my future with him. Do you know what, this, you know what Satan wants to do to you? He wants to do this. He wants you to believe that Jesus is not good. He wants you to believe that Jesus is not powerful. He wants you to believe that Jesus doesn't love you. Those are the lies that the enemy wants you to believe. And we have all struggled or at times got ourselves caught up into believing that at one time or another. Well, Jesus, you can't be good because of this trouble. Jesus, you can't be powerful because of this trouble. Jesus, you can't really love me because of the trouble that I'm experiencing. See, here's what you need to understand. Satan only has four tactics in regards to how he plays the game, so to speak, with you. We actually go through these four tactics in Restore, which is an arm of our discipleship strategy here at Salem Chapel. Some of you have gone through that or are going through that right now, and we go through these tactics. Let me go through them quickly. Here's the first thing he does. He distracts. That's his game plan towards you. How am I gonna get to Johnny and get him to believe that I'm not good, get him to believe that I'm not powerful, get him to believe that I don't really love him well? One of the tactics is he distracts. How? He tempts us, he tempts you, he tempts me into thinking more about my circumstances, more about my trouble than what is true about God's character. He distracts. You ever find yourself that when you're in the midst of trouble, it literally consumes your mind? Like it's all you can think about? 
Like you start thinking, well, how can I control this situation? How can I avoid this situation? How can I do this? How can I do that? It consumes your mind when you wake up in the morning. It consumes your mind when you wake up in the middle of the night. It consumes your mind when you go to bed. It's all you can think about. That's a tactic of the enemy. What is he doing? He's trying to distract you from what is true. He's trying to consume your mind with the trouble rather than consuming your mind being consumed and saying, no, 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 I'm going to choose to believe in what Jesus has provided and is preparing for me that demonstrates his love for me. He distracts. What else does he do? He deceives. No doubt. Deceives you into thinking that God doesn't care about you. His promises don't apply to you. You're like, man, I see amazing breakthrough in my friend, and I'm still feeling distant from the Lord. God's promises don't apply to me. They apply to her. I see them, how they're working out for her. Or maybe she's just better than I am. He deceives. And can I just be transparent? I should have said this before I dealt with any of these tactics. I've experienced any of these in my life, every one of them. And there's been times in my life where I've been ever so lucky to experience all of them at the same time. He also discourages. Man, isn't that true? Leads us to believe that nothing is ever gonna change. Yeah. I'm always gonna have, my marriage is always gonna be this way. No one's ever going to love me. I'm never going to have those relationships that I see others have. God's never going to provide for me. God's never going to give me an opportunity to see that he loves me. Man, the enemy loves to discourage. He wants you to just see your trouble and miss that Jesus is saying, I don't know. I have provided for you and am working on preparing your future. What else does the enemy do? He divides. He works to cause division between us and God, distance between us and God. And let me just say this. God never moves from you or me. If I'm experiencing distance from God, it's because I'm choosing to believe a lie and I'm distancing myself from God, but God's never moved. And thankfully, God is always there with open arms to welcome me back. But he works to cause division between us and God. And get this, us and others who love us the most. Let me give you a perfect example of this. You ever find that when you're really struggling, how you often attack the people that love you the most? You ever find that? But wait a minute, why am, I, why am I not like taking it out on the person who's done this to me? No, I go home and what do I do? I actually take it out on the people that love me the most. Why? Because the enemy wants to create distance from those who are actually a means of God's provision for you. This used to surprise me a lot, but it doesn't anymore. 
That why is it that so often when you're going through trouble, the temptation is to distance yourself from your church home? From the place that actually is going to encourage you to see Jesus' love for you? Why is it you distance yourself from those relationships that you would have at church when you would think intuitively that you would want to draw closer to your church, closer to those relationships. Find yourself more in that place and press in more. Why? Because the enemy wants to do what? He wants to divide you from that which actually is meant to help you. So when I see in here when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, and then he shares in verses two through four what he is actually doing and why he has come, you know what I see? I see how Jesus counters every one of Satan's attacks towards you and towards me. Let me explain quickly. Here's the first thing that I see. Jesus will never distract you. Well, that's what the enemy's game plan is for you, but Jesus will never distract you. Why do I say that? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Keep believing in God. Keep believing in me. Don't distract yourself from what is, of, what is not, what will tell you what's not true about me. No, 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 Be- keep believing in me in the midst of your trouble. He'll never distract you. He'll never deceive you. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What he's telling his disciples is, is listen, you may be troubled right now. Some of his disciples maybe started to get caught on and be like, man, Jesus is acting a little bit different. He seems a little down. He doesn't seem like someone who's about to take over Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. Like he doesn't seem like he's too jazzed right now. He seems to be a little, you know, just troubled. And so that causes them to be troubled. And Jesus is telling them, let not your hearts be troubled. But whether or not they're troubled in that moment, here's what Jesus knows. They will be troubled. That there is coming a time where they're going to hide because they're wondering, man, what has happened? Everything's been turned upside down. Our Savior has been, is in captivity. He's hanging on the cross. Is that going to happen to us? All of his disciples scattered. Jesus already knows that. And so what he's saying here is, I'm never going to deceive you. I'm never going to contradict what I've said In my words to you, Jesus will never discourage you. Why do I say that? It says there, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. You're not going to be alone. Jesus will never divide from you. And he says, I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What is he saying? I am establishing a covenant relationship with you that will never be broken. I don't think we oftentimes think of it this way, but when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, whenever you've done that, that's when my eternity with God starts. Sometimes we like to think it's when, I, when, when our time is up here and we die and then we're in heaven. Oh, that's when eternity starts. No, 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 no. Our eternity starts the moment that we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Do we still experience evil? Do we still experience brokenness? Do we still experience pain? Do we still experience, as I've said, trouble? Absolutely. But I have a hope that it's not always gonna be this way. 
See, what I look at this passage of Scripture, it's so much more than what's my mansion going to be like when I'm in heaven. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's so much more than that, man. Am I going to have five bedrooms, ten bedrooms? Am I going to have a pool? Am I going to be next to my wife? Are we going to be married in heaven? Like all these questions that there's nothing wrong to think about. It's so much more than just what's your mansion going to look like. These are Jesus' words to comfort you in your trouble. That as bad as the trouble is, I know it's not going to take away the reality of what Jesus has provided for me, his love, and what he is preparing for me that's going to be so much better than the good that I experience on this earth or the evil. Here's a second thing. Look at verses 5 through 11. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. In other words, that word know has the idea of deep, intimate relationship with. In other words, Thomas, if you would have listened to what I was saying, you would know that by knowing me, you also know my Father, God the Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me sees the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Now here's what I love about this. Is we're all on different journeys in our relationship with the Lord. You may be further along in your journey with the Lord than someone else who's sitting next to you. You may be a little further or a little behind than your spouse. Or your friend or whatever it is. And here's another thing. The Lord's not like, up. Oh, Tommy's ahead of Lucy. But you see the patience of Jesus with each of his disciples who ask a different question. Because Jesus knows that your walk with the Lord is one that you're growing and understanding how much he loves you. But here's the second way that I believe we can continue believing in Jesus even in the midst of our trouble. Number two, we have to choose to believe Jesus has provided you a relationship with a heavenly father who loves you unconditionally. Unconditionally. See, when Jesus gets on the scene, he keeps mentioning his heavenly father. He keeps mentioning he's going away to spend time with his father. He, he says that over and over and over again in the book of John. He says it here as we just read. But what you need to understand is for Jews, this idea of viewing God as their heavenly father was not something that was normative for them. I mean, God was referred to in the Old Testament as the father of Israel. And so it's not that they didn't understand that, but they always viewed God as father over, over the nation nationally, but not so much personally. 
I mean, you even think about the sacrificial system and the way that it was set up. They had to come and to bring a spotless, uh, whatever animal it may be, from lamb to whatever they could afford, but it had to be without blemish, and they had to present that as a sign that they needed something that was perfect and without blemish to pay for their sins. And then the high priest, who had the ultimate responsibility of interceding on behalf of the nation, would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies, whether that was in the tabernacle or the temple, and he would make a sacrifice one time a year, only go into that place that symbolized God's very presence dwelling with his people, and he would make a sacrifice for all of the sins of the people, and he had to do it exactly right or his life would be taken. There was a veil that separated where God's presence was dwelling from every other place in that temple. Why do I, why do I take time to talk about all that? Because even though they viewed God as nationally, they still didn't understand how could they have a personal, intimate relationship with God enough to call him their heavenly father. When distance was always communicated. Not that God wasn't going to provide, not that his presence was with his people, but like how did they personally experience that? So when Jesus comes on the scene and talks about how they can have a relationship with a heavenly father, this was different. And what Jesus is saying in this passage of scripture is, Andrew, Philip, or Thomas, Philip, I'm sorry, Thomas, Philip, don't you understand that if you want to know who your heavenly father is, look to the way that I love you. If you want to know how your heavenly father cares for people, look to the miracles that I've done. If you want to see how gracious your heavenly father is to you and how much he cares for you, I just washed your feet. What is Jesus saying is he's saying I have come to provide you with the relationship with the heavenly father that you have seen me live out every time I've gone away and spent time with him, that what I experience can also be yours. Not in the sense that you're God, because we're never gonna be God, but we can have a relationship with that heavenly father who has shown us through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that he loves you unconditionally. That regardless of how much you're disappointed in how you lived this last week, and yes, you need to confess that if you have, that you are never going to find a father who holds you at arm's length. That there's never a trouble that you're going to experience or that you even have brought on yourself or someone else that is going to cause you to feel distance from the heavenly father, your heavenly father, towards you. That's what Jesus is getting at here when he says, let not your heart be troubled. Here's why, disciples. Here's why, Salem Chapel. Because he's provided you with a heavenly father who loves you unconditionally. He's provided you with a heavenly father as we already dealt with in John 10, verse 30 who no circumstance, no trouble will ever be able to pluck you out of his hand. See, these disciples had a reference point to how they viewed life because they were people. 
right? You have, you have Matthew, who was a tax collector. You have Simon, who was a zealot. You have disciples, who were fishermen. They all had a reference point. They all had a background. They all had different things that they had experienced in this life, though the scriptures don't go in graphic detail of any of those things. They all had a reference point. They were under Roman persecution. So it was no shock that they viewed Jesus through that reference point, whatever it was. And the same is true for you and me. We all have a reference point that we see life through. You see it through your pain. You see it through the betrayal you've experienced. You see it through someone telling you you're never good enough. You've seen it through believing that you have to achieve more things to gain acceptance from people. We could go on and on. You see it through your shame. You see it through your guilt, whatever that is. And, you, and all of us have a reference point by which we see the world, by which we see relationships, by which we can see God. And when I look at John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, I see it so much more than a verse about our salvation, though it is. I see it as communicating how much Jesus wants you to see his love for you as your way. His love for you as your truth. His love for you as a thing by which you see life. Why do I say that? Because he's speaking to a group of people that already believe who he is. So yes, while this is a great verse to talk about the exclusivity of the gospel and how there's one way to God the Father and have a home in heaven and a relationship with God, it's through Jesus Christ and no other way, absolutely amen, that's the right verse. It's more than that. It's Jesus saying, I want to be your reference point. I want my love for you and the relationship that it's provided you with a heavenly father who sent me to live and die and be risen for your sins that not only do I love you, but you have a father in heaven who loves you. And I've come so that's your way. I've come so that's your truth. I've come so that's your life. 1 John 4 verses 15 and 18 says this, Whoever confesses, and by the way, 1 John is written by the same John who wrote this gospel. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, what happens? God abides in him, communes with him, that's that word abide, walks hand in hand with him as he leads the way, and he and God. So we have come to know, we're growing in knowing and believing what? The love that God has for us. I'm growing more and more in believing how much God loves me. I'm growing more and more in how that can be my reference point by which I see the Lord, by which I see my troubles, by which I see my relationships, by which I see me. Verse 17, by this, by what? What is this? That whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That's the this. Is love perfected with us? So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. That there's never going to come a time where I'm ever going to hear from God, I don't accept you. Why? Because I believe in Jesus' love for me. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. Here's verse 18. This is why I went here. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What do every one of us experience when we encounter trouble? Fear. You may, you may be too much of a man in your mind to admit that, but guess what? I know it's true. Fear. Man, I'm fearful of being accepted. I'm fearful of how this is gonna work out. I'm fearful of this unknown. I'm fearful of rejection and what it could be in this trouble that I'm experiencing. I'm fearful if I'm gonna be able to pay the bills. I'm fearful of whatever it is. But the Holy Spirit through John says, when that perfect love is your reference point, what does it do? It causes you to view that trouble completely differently. Does it take it away? Not so often. But it causes us to see our reality differently. See, when the Lord's love for you is not your reference point, here's what happens. You live life confused at best. See, I look at this passage so differently than I used to look at it because God is growing me in understanding his love for me being my reference point. And the fact that Jesus keeps calling God the Father, here's the confidence that it brings in me before we move on to the last thing. It reminds me that, God, I'm so thankful that you're the perfection of my earthly father, not the reflection of it. And I'm thankful for the dad that God's given me. But here's what I know, the more and more I do life and the more and more I do ministry, so many people equate their view of God as their heavenly father by, by maybe the earthly father that they didn't have. And if that's you this morning, then how much more special to understand what Jesus has provided for you. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What he's saying is the disciples is not that they're gonna be God, but what he's saying is, is the scope and significance of your ministry is going to impact more people than what I've even done three years on this earth. Not in the sense of the impact that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection provided, that's paramount. But in the sense of establishing the church and it taking over the known world and the fact that in 2022 of February, Salem Chapel stands here today on the shoulders, not only ultimately of Jesus Christ, but of the disciples. That's what Jesus is getting at. You guys, you're gonna take this, even though it may not feel this way right now, and even though it's not gonna feel this way in the next three days, but you're going to understand that you are gonna have opportunities with the, with the Holy Spirit filling you for you to experience things that you didn't even experience when you were with me physically is the point. Jump down to verse 15. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I don't know about you, but when I see that, I'm like, <laughs> so does that mean if I'm not keeping them that I don't love you? Verse 16, because it kind of leaves you like, man, I need help. Well, aren't you glad for verse 16? I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. 
for he dwells with you and will be in you. And how can I continue to believe in Jesus in the midst of my trouble? Well, thirdly, I choose to believe that Jesus has provided me with the Holy Spirit as my helper, as your helper. How do we experience that? Because I don't know about you, but so many people are like, yeah, I don't have the Holy Spirit. I know that theologically. Yeah, you tell me that, but how do I experience that? Here's the first way. You got to humble yourself. You got to admit that you need a helper, capital H. I find so often times in my life that when I'm not experiencing the Holy Spirit's power and provision in my life, it's not because the Holy Spirit doesn't have the power and doesn't have the means to provide. It's because I'm not willing to humble myself and admit that I need it. I gotta humble myself. Here's the second thing. I need to make the choice to abide in his word. Remember how I said sanctification Yes, I have the power of the Holy Spirit, but I have a choice to submit my will to the Lord's. It also takes me choosing, abiding in his word, and somehow we get, we get confused into thinking that I can, I can experience the Holy Spirit's power in my life and experience him as my helper without ever engaging his word. The reason why we believe this is paramount at Salem Chapel is because God says it, which is why we've created a Bible reading tool. It's why we have a journal. If you don't have one, you can pick one up at the Welcome Center. It's why we're teaching this to your kids in Salem Kids. It's why we're teaching this to your teenagers in Thrive. It's why we're driving this home in Life Group, in Restore. It's why we're having you read ahead of time what we're going to talk about on Sunday so you don't walk out of here saying, man, I'm so glad in Life Group when you're sitting there talking, well, Johnny said this and Johnny said that. No, no, no. We want you to abide with Jesus and know how to do that on your own and help other people who don't know how to do that. Perfect example. Circumstances that I'm currently going through. Isaiah 55 is a passage of scripture that has just resonated with me in the last few weeks. And you know what I felt the Lord saying to me and what he wants me to do? He wants, he may say something different to you about it, something different, but for me, I was like, I need to memorize Isaiah 55. And so every morning, I pull up an app, and as I'm driving to work, I have a guy named Felix read to me Isaiah 55 in an amazing African accent. I've mentioned that before. And I just listen to it. Not talk radio, not something else, I have Felix read to me Isaiah 55. I've been reading it every week. And it's crazy as I was exposed to, I was like, holy cow, that speaks exactly to what I'm experiencing. I need to abide in that. I need you as my helper. Give you a silly illustration and something insignificant in all of eternity, but I'm at a basketball game this Tuesday and I'm a little anxious. Not a shocker to those of you who know me. Because I can do nothing to affect the outcome of that game. So I'm getting anxious and I'm nervous. You know what I do? <laughs> I'm sitting there in the stands. It was very loud. And I open up 
my phone to Isaiah 55 and I read over it. Not so I'm like, Jesus, my genie in the bottle, help my daughter to win the game. Not that. As much as I wanted to do that. But Lord, let me just sit in Isaiah 55 at a basketball game that has no impact on eternity whatsoever. But I can't expect to experience the Holy Spirit as my helper if I'm not learning to abide in his word. You know what else you do? You abide in prayer. You take time to talk to your Savior. You take time to talk to your spiritual daddy. You take time and understanding even when your trouble's so great and you don't know what to pray. You gotta put on a song on your phone or on your stereo system or in your car and you just need to allow the words to pour over you knowing that Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with prayers when we don't even know what to pray. You abide in prayer. And then here's what you do. When I read God's word and I'm praying and I sense that God is speaking directly to my circumstances and telling me what I need to do, I just don't hear, but what do I need to do? I need to obey. If you use our Bible reading tool, you know the third question is, how is the Holy Spirit asking me to respond in obedience to what I read? Church, here's what I want you to understand today is that we're gonna experience trouble. It's part of life. It's part of living in a sinful world. It's not a pessimistic thing. It's just a realistic thing. But the Lord has said to us, let not your hearts be troubled. Keep believing in me. I've provided for you a future, and I'm preparing it right now. Jesus is working right now. He's writing your story right now. And at the end of that story is victory. At the end of that story is heaven. At the end of that story is no more tears, no more struggle, but it is all joy, all good, all the time, because that's what God intended when he created this world. He's provided you with a heavenly father who loves you more than any relationship you have in your life right now. And he's provided you with the Holy Spirit to equip you to do what you can't do on your own. Here's why I say that. John 14, 26, and then we'll pray. Jesus says this about this helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Why? Because the Lord understands you don't know it all right now. He understands you need to grow from where you are right now. He's going to teach you all things. And he's going to bring to remembrance all that I've said. Do you ever have that in your life? You're like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes a passage of scripture. Out of nowhere comes something that you already learned. And it's exactly what you need when you need it. You open up God's word and it's like, holy cow, this speaks to this situation. I never saw it in God's word before. Why? Because Hebrews 4.12 says God's word is living and it's active. So let's believe today. Let's not give up. 
But man, let's believe in Jesus and let's allow his love for us to be our reference point, to see how much he loves us and allow that to be the lens by which we see our faith, which we see our life, our relationships, and even our trouble. Would you stand with me this morning? God, when you tell us, don't let our hearts be troubled, my response is, God, I can't do that on my own strength. But Lord, it's in that humility and admitting that, Lord, that is the first step to experiencing your love in a fresh and significant way in our lives. God, I pray for every person in this room, every person watching online, every person that will listen to this later on, that you will affirm to them how much you love them. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that you, you allowed yourself to know what it's like to be troubled. And thank you for the words that you've given us and how to deal with it in your strength, in your power, in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.